This podcast is presented by Corteva AgriScience, the agriculture division of Diao DuPont. What's in a name? For Corteva, there is a lot to unpack. Corteva is the new agri-science business to be created from the combined agricultural assets of Dow Chemical and DuPont. The name comes from a combination of words, meaning heart and nature. Learn more about the new company's values at www.corteva.com slash core-values.html. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm Ryan Heath, your host, the political editor of Politico Europe. It has been another wild and rough week in European politics. So we're going to have the episode themed this week as Back to the Future. Why do I say that? Because we had the Italian election Sunday. And what a surprise, we had a little bit of a chaotic mess and it's going to be hanging around for weeks. We've also got International Women's Day this week, where we're still campaigning for equality, where we're still making the point that women aren't treated fairly in the workplace in terms of their pay, in terms of the culture, in terms of not having to be harassed or assaulted, just going about their daily business. And we're also going to be talking about Martin Selmayr. He is still bending the rules when it comes to how the European Commission operates, and his spokespeople are still in denial about how he went about doing it. On those Italian elections, well, what a wake-up call for Brussels. We've said it before, but we're going to have to say it quite a number of times in the future, I think. Brussels is slowly getting used to the idea that they might be having to deal with a populist as the head of the government of one of their biggest member states. If we're not talking the five-star movement, which, you know, their policies are different depending on which day you're talking to them, we might be even dealing with something that's a little bit more complicated. That is Matteo Salvini, a member of the European Parliament, who heads up the League, formerly known as the Northern League, who might be heading up a right-wing coalition government. Either way, it's going to be a difficult few weeks and months for everyone here in the EU bubble. In our main interview this week, we're talking to Commissioner Marianne Thiessen. I spoke to her on stage at the Stanhope Hotel in Brussels. That was also in light of International Women's Day, where we were talking about what we can do to get more people in better quality jobs and training across Europe. We also hear from Lulua El Qatar, who is the spokesperson for the Foreign Ministry of Qatar. Not normally a country you think of in terms of feminist advances, but Lulua, she dropped by the office, she was very open, and it was a very interesting discussion to have. And now it's time to hear from European Commissioner Marion Thiessen, We're going to talk a little bit more about Martin Selmayr in the podcast panel, but make sure you keep listening for her views on what it was like in the room when he was appointed European Commission Secretary General. I wanted to start off by talking about inequality and how that relates to your job, because I think whether you see it in terms of the workers who are displaced by globalization, the gender pay gap, which we know is very persistent and shrinking only very slowly. Think about the young people in Italy who have said through their votes in the last few days that they don't think they're getting the opportunities that they deserve in society. And then you look at things like the geographic differences that mark the sort of votes we saw around Brexit and things like that. I think inequality is affecting all of our politics today. So I wanted to get your take on what the European Commission can do about that. And can you give us a bit of a preview of the social fairness package you're going to launch next week? Well, inequality is, of course, something that we have to fight. Because what we see, and more and more 
important international economic organizations also confirm that is that when inequality is too high, that it's not only a social matter, but it's also an economic problem because people don't invest anymore in their own future. They don't invest anymore in the future of their children, in the skills of their children, in the education of their children, and the whole society is going down. So it's bad for a cohesive society. It's a bad thing for a flourishing economy. So we have to tackle it to fight it. But then the question is, of course, what can we do? And we had already heard how important skills levels, having the right skills, having good skills, quality skills, and also to have the opportunity to upskill, uh, opportunity to participate in lifelong learning mm -hmm. is very, very important. Because what we see when we look in Europe at, if you look at income inequality, for instance, we look at poverty also, we see that every time again, it's low-skilled people that are worse off all the time. So skills, skills, and again, skills is very, very important. If we look into the labor market and in the career progress of women, we see that everything is going fine until the moment of children. And when there are children, then women are penalized in the labor market and they don't have the possibility to, how can I say, many of them don't have the possibility to reach their full potential in their career. So there is a blocking mechanism. What do we see that it is? it has to do with caretaking tasks? And you see that most of the time it's on the shoulders of women. And then, of course, we from the European Commission, we can say, yeah, every family organizes its life as it wants to. It's not up to us to say how they have to organize their life personally. But what we want to provide people with is equal opportunities and real equal opportunities. And we know that many women want to work more, better, and that many men want to take uh, also care responsibilities. That's the reason why from the European side, we did a proposal to improve work-life balance, where we organize it and reorganize the parental leave and other leaves in such a way that we incentivize men to take it up and that we prevent the leave is transferred to the women. And is that a set of best practices or it's actually a legal safety net that will apply to everyone? It is Europe? always a legal safety net. It's always about minimum rights. When mm. we have rights in Europe, when we make legislation in Europe, it's minimum rights and member states can always top up. Some member mm. states do it. And when it comes to that social fairness package, is the right way to think of it that that is the kind of operating manual for the social European social pillar that was agreed last year? The pillar is really a fundamental instrument for us. It's a, a compass. But what we see in Europe is that we don't have enough convergence in the social field. Second aim is that we want to adapt people, to prepare people and to adapt our old institutions to the new economy. We have new kinds of jobs. People that work for the gig economy, we say, for platforms. We don't know, are they a worker, are they self-employed? We have very short-term contracts. We have contracts with just a couple of hours. We think that people in the future will, will change at least 10 times during their career. But then you must organize transitions. People are always weak and vulnerable in the transition moment. And what about their social security? So if we talk about the fairness package, access to social security for all, what we want to ask member states is that they look at their social security system and see how they can improve, for instance, transferability. If people change from status, I'm a worker, I'm a self-employed, I'm again a worker. What do people do if they lose entitlements? They don't dare to change. And you have not the optimum allocation of the labor in the labor market. We have to make sure that people can build up social security schemes, also when they have fragmented labor contracts. Sounds almost like a single market for your rights. 
That's what I was thinking when I was hearing you. Well, it's not that. a real single market for the rights, uh, a real single market for social security. We cannot really harmonize social security rules. The design of the social security systems, the way they finance it, it's really the competence of the member states. That's the reason why we come with, I cannot say soft measures, but with a recommendation, because I really want action. I could have said I come with a directive. I say straightly, member states have to take care of that one, two, three, four and then they don't accept it. And then they can say, wow, this was a good commissioner, strong involvement, the directive, immediately the hard stuff with no results. So I will come next week with a recommendation and we give support to member states to do the necessary reforms also. Maybe I can sort of hone in then on something like the European Labour Authority that has been mooted. Is that kind of the critical component for enforcing these rights, for example? That's another thing, an agency that we want to create, and we will launch a proposal of a regulation next week for that. European Labour Authority, I've always said from the start, I want fair rules, clear rules, legal certainty, and enforceable rules. And that's why we need this European Labour Authority. Last November, we had a social summit, the first social summit in 20 years, where we had a commitment at the highest political level that a stronger Europe must move on. Well, it's time for rapid fire question. So first up, we're in Belgium. Beer or chocolate? Beer. Charles Michel or Louis Michel? Charles. <laughs> Opera or cinema? Mm, cinema. Juncker or Selmayr? <laughs> Juncker first, Selmayr second. Oh. We got our headline. Um, <laughs> Leuven or Leuven la Neuve? Leuven. I was a, uh, yes. Yeah. It's my, my alma mater. So. Hard Brexit or soft Brexit? Soft Brexit. It, it depends what you mean. And uh, last question. Who's your favorite friend in the College of Commissioners? Wow. <laughs> my neighbors. I like my neighbors. It's Androkaitis mm -hmm. uh, left of me mm -hmm. and it's Stylianidis right of me. But I like them all. We have a good college, really. That was the first thing I discovered. I thought the first week when we met at the seminar in Jean Val, I thought at least this is a good start. It's all nice people. Excellent. Now, one question maybe you kind of could guess that I was going to ask about it. I mean, there's trade wars, there's the Italian election, and we're all thinking about that. But another thing a lot of people in Brussels are thinking about at the moment is Martin Selmayr and the way he's just taken over as Secretary General of the Commission. So I don't want you to get fired or anything like that. But <laughs> I think we'd all love to know a little bit about what it was like in the room when he got that promotion. What was the atmosphere like? What was your reaction to the news? Surprise, because we didn't know it all beforehand. And... Um, <laughs> Good, good to know. Um, so the first you knew was really in the room when it just happened. I don't know whether there were rumors before, but I, yeah. I haven't heard about the rumors. I, I was not aware. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was aware about other proposals, of course. Yeah. But uh, this one, not. It was a surprise, but there was uh, a consensus. Mm -hmm. So no one spoke against it then. I guess what I'm trying to get at is it's not standard employment practice, I might say. It's not your typical job interview. Um, <laughs> for a public organization, but you think the college is behind it now. And but it's not a typical job either. That's true. Okay. And all the rules were followed. Religiously, that was the claim that... 
Okay. So you're, 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 um, you're okay, because what I worry about for some people, and I'm not trying to personalize it to you, but people put in 30, 40 year careers in mm -hmm. building up their political reputation mm -hmm. and so on. So I'm just checking that you and the college are okay having your reputations tied now to Martin being in this important role. Well, I know that, of course, people are investing and so on and so on, but uh, if, you, if one thing is for sure, I think that uh, we can say and all, all have to recognize that Selmayr was an excellent head of cabinet mm -hmm. of the president, and I'm convinced he has all the... All you need to be a good secretary general also. Let's move on to some more of these questions here, because I guess the EU budget is the next big thing. How will the Commission invest more directly in digital skills in the coming years in the budget? Um, what I am fighting for in this preparatory round is that we have a separate heading in the budget on investing in people. In the skills agenda, the first principle of the 20 principles of the uh, European pillar of social rights, sorry, the first principle is opportunities in the labour market and education, training, lifelong learning, scaling, upskilling and so on. And maybe now, in terms of the tough choices, Commissioner Oettinger is going to bring in all the commissioners and all of their director generals in April. And I think, as I understand it from the letter that he and Juncker sent out to everyone, it's basically to say, what are your priorities or what would you be willing to cut loose? Skills clearly is a big theme for you going forward. Is that your number one priority or is there another thing that you would protect at all costs when Oettinger comes and says, great ideas, but we have to lose some of them? skills but broader than that it's investment in people i think we have to empower people many people feel to be left behind they are afraid of being the losers or that their children will be the losers they are worrying about the future and i think we have to show people not that we will stop the future not that we will stop digitalization that we will stop globalization because first we can't mm -hmm. second we don't want to do it because there are also opportunities but we must show people that we are accompanying them through those transitions and this is why we need also money and politics to invest in people to empower them mm -hmm. to support them when they are in a transition from one job to another let's think of a company like uber which is doing what it can to make sure all the people that work with uber aren't classified as its employees so do we have to keep fighting to make those companies live up to a higher standard? Or do we actually just tell the people who might want to work with them, we're going to help you as much as possible and, and kind of forget the, the, the company end of it? I think this is also about respecting legislation. Or you are a worker, it means you work in the name and for somebody else, temporary, otherwise you are a slave. Mm -hmm. And you get remuneration for that. And that's uh, the European definition of a worker. We have clear, well-established jurisprudence on what has to be considered. Sometimes people try to say, yeah, uh, I only work with... I know that sometimes people try to say, yeah, I only work with self-employed because it's cheaper, the social security contributions are cheaper, but this is not just a free choice. You don't choose your, your status. This is defined in legislation, and we must respect legislation, and therefore you need controls. Now, a personal question about work-life balance. What's something you do to keep balance in your life? Well, I promote it, but I'm not a good example. <laughs> but you need to develop a narrative for yourself always. So what I said from the start uh, of my political career was, yeah, I work day and night. Why? How? And so on. But then I realized if you're in politics, you have to consider your work as your hobby, 
Otherwise, if you don't like it, you don't do it. As you're volunteering, mm -hmm. you work in the interest, in the general interest, you work for people, and as your professional life. And then you can live with it. But That's I also need a balance. I also need a balance, and sometimes I need compensation. And then uh, what I do is then sports. I heard you're a big cyclist. Uh, big is a big word, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm keen on cycling. Good. I like cycling. Every second year, I do a cycling holiday with friends already since the 80s. Are we talking we go like... We go into the mountains. We in the, the mountains. It's not the Netherlands. You're not pedaling around a lake. You're like up I and down a mountain. I did it once. I did it once. The, what do they say? 11, 11, I don't know how you call it in English. Elfstedentocht. Mountains? No, in the Netherlands, it's flat. flat oh, flat, flat, okay. flat. Yeah. A lot of wind, but everything is flat. But <laughs> I like to do it in the mountains, in the Pyrenees. And uh, I did... I have a nice palmares on uh, the mountains I climbed with my bike. But I like it. And if I have no time to bike, because it's also time-consuming, mm. I run. I've got very good sources. And one of them told me your husband does organic farming, that he's got a little vegetable patch as well. Are you benefiting from that? Is that a true rumor? Absolutely. My husband uh, likes gardening. He has a, we have a big garden. And he's, sometimes I say, you are a real farmer. It's true. And on top of this, he prepares everything. He cooks, he makes jam, he makes soup, he does everything. So I'm uh, about work-life balance. for Women's Day. About work balance. Mm -hmm. This part is yep. uh, really uh, household tasks. Okay. More for my husband than for me. <laughs> that's great. But he's retired. Well, I think whatever works. I mean, that's my philosophy. You should... <laughs> you need to... If you don't have a happy home uh, where everyone is uh, by agreement, you can't have slaves in the home. We either. have a You've nice divide of, uh, of tasks at home. It's not balanced. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Okay. I agree also when he is uh, present. Yeah. But it's nice for me and it makes my life more comfortable, I must say. And then there's another question. I'm going to jump to this one. What can we do about the persistent levels of youth unemployment in some countries in mm -hmm. Europe? Where, I mean, I think sometimes there is a mistake here where we look at very high levels of youth unemployment and we think like it's a new phenomenon. I think consistently throughout post-war history, Absolutely. youth unemployment has always been higher because you have that transition period getting out from whatever training you were in into the labour market. So it's, it is always going to be higher, but it's been very high in some countries. Is that about broader economic structural reform in those countries? Is it about their education system? Is it something where the EU didn't dive in to fill the gap? What can we do? So we are not yet at pre-crisis level, but it's going down and it's going in the right direction. That's the positive news. And in some member states, it's very low. It is 4-5%. That's really at a low record. It's really uh, amazingly low, like uh, Germany, the Czech Republic, for instance, Estonia also, that are the three champions on this. But then the worst cases, let me say, on the other side, it's Greece with the specific problems of Greece, of course. This has consequences, aftermaths of the crisis, but also Spain, Italy, Croatia, still very high. And in Spain, we saw that many young people left education because they thought that they could all work in the construction sector, earn a lot or enough money to survive and so on. But then the construction sector collapsed during the crisis and they all lost their jobs. And what we see is that it has to do, like Spain, for instance, with the educational level. Too much people are early leavers in education. So they don't even have secondary school and they leave. And they are low-skilled and it's very difficult to find a job in the labor market. You have also, in member states with high youth unemployment figures, the public employment services that are really not working at full capacity. 
Italy, for instance, the public employment services, it was very fragmented. Now they have their uh, labor market reform in Italy, so we, we hope this also will help to improve the situation of the young people. Did they do their homework? So thinking of something like the youth guarantee, did countries like Italy and Spain <laughs> implement it the way that you asked them to? Slowly, but they did. It's also sometimes the culture. In Italy, we see that young people, even with university degrees, they start working very late. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time before they have, uh, let me say, what we call a normal salary for a, people, for a person with university degree. Yeah. So it's part of the culture also. In some member states, they are not so active on the active labor market, let me say. Well, this brings us to an interesting kind of social cultural debate about the value of education today, where if I look at some of the countries that have very low unemployment rates, one thing that seems to be a commonality amongst them is that they have quite strong vocational apprenticeship type systems. And we see it maybe more in the context of countries like the United States, where university education can be very, very expensive. But more and more people start to ask, are they getting value for the university degree? And that brings you to questions mm -hmm. like, are the university degrees practical enough? Are they giving employers what employers need to hire people for good jobs? Do you have any like personal or thoughts or thoughts as the commissioner about that mix of education and skills? Like, have we put university on a pedestal that it doesn't deserve? And do we need to go and have things like vocational education be more of a focus? My answer to the last question is yes, I think so. Mm -hmm. And that is what we always see. Parents want the best for their children. And then they think, yeah, they have to go to the university. That's the best thing that they can have. Then we see people with university degrees. They often are overqualified for the job they do. You can then say, was the education, was the curriculum relevant? Was it labor market relevant? Sometimes this is a question. We have to look at it, and we are doing that. We, have, we created uh, what we call sectoral blueprints, where we put people from the education side with people from the industry together to look at the curricula and to see what is necessary, what do, what do we really need. I think we need, first of all, young people must follow their passion. Mm -hmm. If you like your job, whatever you do, and we don't have to talk always in levels, I think they must follow their passion and do what they are best in. And then we must offer them, I mean public authorities and those who organize education, good quality education. Mm -hmm but not only at university level, also good quality vocational education and training. And this is what we are really stressing, better quality. I guess the point I wanted to make was about the Brussels labour market as well, where I think because, you know, you need highly skilled people to do difficult jobs, but I think one of the criticisms people can often make about the EU bubble is that we don't look like the rest of Europe, for example. But there are jobs that could be done by people who don't have degrees. But it's almost like now you need three degrees just to get an internship in this town, and it creates this very skewed labour market. And then there's that situation where I think the Commission and the Parliament are pretty good at their internships in what they pay. But then around town, now you have a situation where hundreds of people will apply for a job that doesn't have a salary often. Do you have any impressions or reactions about what we can do to be a more sustainable EU bubble when it comes to our employment practices? Or are there any things you've seen where you want to tell people, stop doing that? I think we are privileged. We just don't have to, to deny. We work in an international, not only in an international uh, town, but also in an international organization or organizations. Everybody who is here is working uh, in one way or another for Europe, let me say, or cross-border. So then you are privileged. I think you cannot just say this is bad. But I think we have to realize 
that not everybody is living in this bubble and that there is a world outside and that we have with our responsibilities to support also that people. And I think that is very important. That was Marianne Thiessen, the EU's Employment Commissioner, talking to me on stage in Brussels earlier this week. Still to come, our podcast panel, and coming up next, an interview with Lulwa Al-Qatar, the spokesperson for Qatar's foreign ministry, the first woman to hold such a post in a Gulf state. But first, a message from this week's sponsor. This podcast is presented by Corteva AgriScience, Agriculture Division of Dow DuPont. Food is the most basic human need and the engine of economic development. As our societies grow, our food needs are growing. But our Earth has a finite amount of resources. Resources don't grow at the same pace as our economies. This is why the agriculture industry needs to find smarter ways to meet this demand. And this means changes to how we farm. Corteva AgriScience, the new agriscience business being formed from the merger of Dow Chemical and DuPont, is on a mission to make every crop, field and farm stronger. Corteva is going to bring more innovators to the table, employees, producers and consumers. They're growing progress by being the most innovative, most inclusive, most open agriculture company in the world. Now it's time to hear from Lulwa El-Qatar. She dropped by our office last week in the lead up to International Women's Day and we were really excited to talk to her. She's the first female spokesperson for Qatar's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Qatar's not normally a country we'd associate with feminist advances, but it's a very interesting time for the country. They've been developing rapidly, they're subject to a blockade by their neighbors, and Lulwa was great fun to catch up. Joining us now on EU Confidential is Lulwa El-Qatar, who is spokesperson for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Qatar. So that's a very special guest to have on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. Excellent. Now, I will definitely talk to you about all the work you're doing, but one of the things that I think many people listening will be surprised by is that it's a woman doing this job. So I thought maybe we'll ask you straight up in the context of International Women's Day. Tell us, are there many women working in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs? And what is it like working in a region that many people perceive as, as male-dominated? Absolutely. I mean, um, yes, I'm the first spokeswoman um, in Qatar, I'm the GCC, and probably in the Arab region. That said, I would uh, probably revisit something you posed in your question that uh, women might have a particular position in our part of the world, basically. I think women are having difficulties uh, everywhere. I myself studied in the UK. My undergrad was in engineering, and it was, again, yet another male-dominated world. So I started facing some of the difficulties back then, and I realized that what sometimes in the gender studies discourse they call the glass ceiling was actually there. So it's not seeable necessarily, however, it exists. And then my first job was in the oil and gas sector. Again, yet another male-dominated sector, as you can imagine. Now, only very recently I joined the world of of diplomacy and politics and and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And I think that the same difficulties obviously exist. You have an expectation of having a particular pattern of professional behavior that is men-like, I would say. And personally, I I reject that. Um, I'm very proud of my identity in all its dimensions including the gender dimension. 
And I think it's very important for us as, as women around the world to preserve this identity because it's powerful and beautiful. And what attracted you to diplomacy? Is that the scale of the challenge? Qatar has some big challenges at the moment in terms of the blockade it's been facing regionally. So tell us a bit more about wh why you decided to take on this job. Absolutely. I mean, there was this sense of national duty, if you wish, under the circumstances and, of course, under the blockade that some of our neighbors unfortunately decided to impose on Qatar, but the wider region is, as well. So um, I was pursuing more or less a career in academia before actually joining the world of diplomacy. But then you realize that sometimes what you study in theories needs some sort of a venue or a channel to be applied. And I guess the world of diplomacy can merge uh, both things. Mm -hmm. um, maybe if I could ask you a question about Qatar's developments, so like both its achievements and its challenges. And maybe an analogy I wanted to use was China where China, for example, has got hugely impressive achievements, but also big challenges in terms of how sustainable it is as a society, all the questions people have about its human rights record and so on. So not that it's a direct analogy, but to put people in that context of Qatar, where you are out there transforming your education system, you're building media empires when it comes to things like Al Jazeera, you are really transforming physically what the state is like. And then people have many questions around things like, why do you need to have a World Cup in the 50 degree heat in the sun? If I speak to trade unions, they would say there are big problems when it comes to the conditions of workers in, in Qatar, for example. So can you tell us a bit about those twin sides of, of Qatar's development? Well, in terms of having the World Cup in the heat, let's remember that when it happened in 1994 in the US, some of the matches happened in Texas, which has the same exact climate um, conditions. Going back to the original point and the analogy you, you made, I would say that a better analogy would be Singapore, mm -hmm. simply f because of the fact that both are small city-states, if you wish. In Qatar, early 2000, we started this new framework of going towards a more knowledge-based economy. And we've been looking at models like Singapore, and other countries, uh, Malaysia, Japan, and so on and so forth. But Singapore would be the closest, and Norway as well, given the fact that Norway, again, has resources when it comes to mm -hmm. oil, but at the same time, it managed to transform its economy into more knowledge-based economy. And when you say you were modeling yourself on Singapore, is that in a sort of a general inspiration sense? Or would you imagine yourself one day aligning with the West? Or, or, or do you prefer to keep a very distinct national identity? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is a more of a broader question, a philosophical question almost. I mean, a new question, you mentioned progressing to a Western model. And this has to do with the worldview that you have. I mean, one of my areas of, of, of interest is Islam and modernity. And there was, in the Enlightenment, time and the modernity, if you wish, progress theory, there was a sense that progression of history is a linear one. Now, of course, in postmodern theories, this has been reversed. And now you're talking about different paths to, quote unquote, modernize, in other words, to develop, but in a very different way. So I think what we're talking about today, globally speaking, is not necessarily developing into a specific model, i.e. the Western model, which is very Eurocentric in, in a sense, it's to develop, but at the same time preserve some of your identity, as you put it, some of the different characteristics. There isn't 
one way that is right. There are multiple ways of, of developing and progressing. And if we could finish up with maybe a question about what your message is to Europe. You're here in Europe's de facto capital. So what would you like your relationship to be with the European Union? And, and did you get closer towards that this week? Absolutely. I mean, we're looking very much forward to strengthening the bilateral relations between Qatar and all the European countries. We're here in Belgium. Belgium uh, was the first European country to import Qatari LNG in 2007. The UK, for example, depends by uh, almost 25% to 30% of its LNG consumption on on, uh, Qatar as well. So we are looking forward to strengthening those bilateral relations, not only economically though, economically, culturally, education-wise. Let us remember that Qatar today in its education city hosts at least seven different branch campuses of both European and American universities. You remind me maybe of one really final question, um, and it's a Eurocentric one, I'm sorry, but people are quite obsessed about the question of Brexit. From the distance that you have in Qatar, is is it something that you just think of as a minor detail, or does it really affect how you would engage with countries in Europe? I mean, we're still engaging with different European countries on bilateral level, but at the same time with the European Union. And in terms of the UK, um, again, Qatar continues uh, its relations, investments with the UK. As a matter of fact, uh, in our part of the world, we look at the example of Brexit as something to be respected because despite all the differences, it's happening peacefully, let's put it this way. And we would like to see a model like the EU developing in, in the Arab region. But if there are differences, we would like to see a very civilized way to manage those differences, just like what we saw with Brexit. That's a very nice way to think of it. Lula El Qatar, thank you very much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much. So we're going to stick with the Back to the Future theme as we welcome in the podcast panel. And we're going to start with a feud of the week. And that is Martin Selmayr versus the world. And in particular, the Brussels media pack. So what am I talking about there? Martin Selmayr, he's the Secretary General of the European Commission. You've just heard Commissioner Marian Thiessen talking about how it was a little bit surprising that he got a massive double promotion to now be the man who runs the whole show here in Brussels. And what happened in particular? All of that happened behind closed doors. Virtually nobody knew about it in advance. What do you make of this feud from the outside, ladies? Well, I also wanted to mention the fact that the Parliament have now taken this on. They want to look at this meteoric rise through the civil service of the European Commission, which is usually very bureaucratic. Of course, there's power plays or whatever, but usually there's a system in place. And how did he manage to do that? So that's another uh, ongoing saga and scrutiny that we'll be seeing on this story uh, in the coming days. But yeah, what do I think? I think, yeah, it should be scrutinised and people should be annoyed. You know, there are people who spend their whole careers climbing that ladder in Brussels and for him to kind of swoop in and over many other deserving people in a way that, that seems quite underhanded, you know. that's How a- do we even know he's the best for the job? I mean, like... He's widely regarded as brilliant. 
But if you don't even let other people apply, like. But if he were brilliant, why would he accept such a, um, how to say, not straightforward method to get this promotion? If he's brilliant, why doesn't he think of his future? Because with maybe with a new president uh, next year to the commission, they will first thing they say, okay, we're going to change the secretary general. I mean, what future? career does he have? I, I think is this is where we're headed now, where any president who wants to be treated seriously, it's going to be a, the first question is, do I knife Martin Selmayr? <laughs> Otherwise, Clean I won't be taken up. seriously. I'll be the puppy dog, not mm. the, the lion or whatever the metaphor is. Yeah. Imagine the MEPs. They could turn up and say, well, you've politicized this position, Martin Selmayr. Mm. Now we're going to ask every presidential candidate to turn up with their secretary general candidate, yeah. or we're going to interview the secretary general as well. Maybe mm. there'll be no president. The parliament will just go on strike and say we're not approving anyone until we're happy with the civil service. It's, yeah. it's a very short-sighted, I think. So for EU WTF this week, we're going to take stock because it's International Women's Day and we're going to take stock of some recent news and where we are with this Me Too movement and how it affects uh, EU politics. I wanted to kickstart the discussion with the news that Belgium, the Belgian court system, has fined a man €3,000 for verbally harassing a female police officer based on her gender. She stopped him for a traffic violation and the court has found that her dignity was offended by the way that he engaged with her there. Now, I'm not sure that that's me too precisely, but it does definitely take us into that territory of where have we got to with these redrawing of the boundaries of how the genders relate to each other. Alva, you are looking like you have a contribution to make. Yeah, I think it's quite controversial, actually, this idea that now you can be fined for saying something sexist in public. It was to a female uh, police officer. Uh, and I just wonder, where does that bring us? Like, a lot of people have, have said that that is going to breach freedom of speech, for example. Other people have criticised it because where is this law around race? So I do think if we're looking at the Me Too movement and how whether or not it was intersectional, I think that is a problem in general. We haven't seen necessarily that the Me Too movement has engaged with equality from all perspectives. Me Too has really been about gender. And I think uh, that's something that I wanted to say on International Women's Day. You know, equality for all women, uh, not just white women. It's good that they're starting to having it in the court and making it public and reading about it in the media. It's important. It's enforcing. On the equation of International Women's Day, with all the achievement and the development and the celebrations and the headline, I think it takes more than one day. The women that they are in disadvantaged areas and disadvantaged places, uh, this lady has been a was able to, to voice what happened to her. We have just lived uh, what happened with the Oxfam scandal. They were women that they have been harassed, they have been brutalized, and they had no person to speak to. And there are women that they're crossing Mediterranean uh, Sea in order to save their children and be in a better place and fight for their bread. So I do think that the Me Too, it's not only about with all due respect to all the celebrities are behind it and all the brains behind this and the force, but still we need to go to the daily suffering of these women. My perspective is that it's the opening of a conversation. 
So I think with any new movement, any new way of seeing the world, people have to feel their way through it. You don't uh, overturn centuries of a problem uh, in the space of six months or something like that. Even as a journalist, I look at the disappointment some people have that we haven't written more stories, even for a publication like Politico that's been committed to looking this issue in the eyes. And I think with the New York Times and their work on Harvey Weinstein, it took them six months to even get that first story together. And we've only been having that discussion for less than six months since that story broke. So I think uh, that all your points are valid and that it's going to take some time before we get more problems on the record that I know and believe from my reporting so far are real in Brussels. Well, we're continuing that theme of Back to the Future. We're resurrecting the Dear Politico section right now. We've received an email from a man called Benjamin Opperman, who works for the European People's Party Group in the European Parliament, and he has a scam that he wants some advice on. Dear Politico, my ID was sort of stolen last year when I was looking for a flat. I sent a copy of my passport to a guy who was offering the flat. The offer was a scam. They asked for 700 euros rent to be paid to an Irish bank account. And these guys are now using my ID to offer apartments to interns, mainly via expats.com and groups on Facebook. It's really crazy. What happens is that new interns, and you know there are thousands of them twice a year in Brussels, they go on normal and real Facebook groups. Then they are contacted by a nice girl called Claire Tebbett, who tells them to write to an Emmanuel Mark. He might know someone. This someone is me. I've been contacted by interns who either paid roughly 700 euros to these people or are not sure if it's serious. And fortunately, they find me on Google and then write to me at my parliament address. I already went to the police here in Brussels. I wrote to Facebook. I wrote to Google because the guys are using a fake Gmail address with my name, benjamin.opperman83 at gmail.com. Bottom line is, no one is warning these poor interns to be more careful. What can we do? It's heartbreaking. Oh, that is such a stinger that they've used your ID. I, I really have to like commiserate with that. I wonder if there's any way that we can, you know, put a little bit of pressure on, on Facebook and Google to remove these fraudulent profiles because I think that is the thing. The internet is a curse and uh, a blessing in some ways because having these kind of online profiles reinforces the idea that people are real right online you can you can trust them especially this guy who's working for the european uh, in the parliament so you can imagine loads of people googling him and thinking legit great so yeah i i feel like we should de- you should definitely <laughs> tell them that this has been on <laughs> on their platforms yeah. uh, lena what about an idea of going back to basics is there something more fundamental benjamin or other interns could be doing um, I'm somebody who cannot uh, pay money online and I don't buy, buy th- things online and I have, I'm, I'm very careful on how I transfer money. I'm not good in numbers and money. Lena basically. the Luddite. I love it. We've got a new nickname for you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, we've been all interns and young. I mean, you have to be careful to whom you're sending your money. They truly, truly needs to know the identity of the person. They are renting a house or they're sending their money. Uh, these these things uh, are So are meet basic people before us. you give anyone money, basically. Exactly. I've got one last tip, Benjamin. I think you should take advantage of the reply all function 
in the Parliament email system. I have seen a lot of pointless emails go to 10,000 people about lost earrings and MEPs who can't find their iPad cover. I think this is a really useful warning that you can send out to those 10,000 Parliament email addresses. So get typing and press send just like you did to Dear Politico. Mm-hmm. And now it's time for MEP of the week. Here we go. I'm going to go first this week. Da, 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 da. Oh, Here we go. <laughs> so I have pulled out of the hat Jan Huitema, who is from the Veve Day in the Netherlands, and I'm pretty sure he is a young farmer. Can I see? Yeah, I'm gonna like jump onto Google and check that this man is a young farmer, and uh, we might have a winner for first up. Here we go. Lena's <laughs> remarking that he looks very young. Uh, Jan Huitema is from the 5th of July, 1984. <laughs> We've got a 33-year-old. He is, let me see, how, he was born the son of a farmer and he went to school oh in Sneak. What a name, not a great village. <laughs> and he obtained a bachelor's degree in animal sciences at Wageningen University. And he followed it up this with a master's degree in animal production systems at the same university. Oh, and then he started working for a Dutch MEP and then he became an MEP himself. Okay, that's not so interesting, Jan. Um, <laughs> did either of you know who he was? No. no. Okay, well, that doesn't count. We've got to get some more names out of that. Peter Simon from Germany, from the SPD. He's in the S&D. I've never heard of him. Never heard of him. Me Claudia Tapadel from the SND and she's from Romania and I don't know her. But don't know her. Researcher. No, another one. Da, 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 da. Uh, Miguel Urban Crespo. I've seen his photo. He's from Podemos in Spain, but no, I can't say that I really know him. Oh, Gerard de Prez uh, is with Aldi and he is Belgian from the Reformers movement. And I have uh, Kaja Kalas. Ah, yes. You know Kaya Kalas? She's the Estonian. Yes. She does digital. Yeah, and I, yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking why I, I know the name. Because Sim sure. Kalas is her father, uh-huh. and he was the vice president of the European Commission. Do you know Kaya uh, Kalas, uh, Alva? That's why no. I know okay, Kaya, you're, we're feeling generous this week, and you are the MEP of the week. That's what we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential, but we're coming with some very good news for you. Up until now, you've known and enjoyed EU Confidential as a podcast only. But you've been enjoying it so much, we've decided to extend it into a range of other platforms. So from next week, especially if you're living in Brussels, you'll find easy access to a print column called EU Confidential in Politico Europe's weekly newspaper that comes out Thursdays. If you're not in Brussels, you can have it home delivered if you're willing to pay the delivery charges. Just check the Politico website for those details. And also, often people are getting the podcast via an email that we send out to them. Well, we're going to extend what's in that email so that you get not just the podcast, but a range of other information about what's really going on behind the scenes in Brussels in text form. So keep an eye out for that email newsletter. Subscribe at politico.eu forward slash registration if you're not already on our list. Keep an eye out for the print column, and we'll be talking to you the same time next week on this podcast. Podcasting is a team effort, so thanks as always to Andrew Gray, Michelle Stoddart, Wei Dong Lin, and Antonio Fernandez.